Chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. All right. So this is our last message in this little series that we're doing together. And um, hopefully it's been uh, something that you've just... Uh, taken, taken with you and stuff that you've really learned, maybe different ways that you've learned about Gideon that you've never really known before. Um, hope you've been able to get something out of it. I know God's been teaching me a lot of different things on this one. So, Judges chapter 8. Alright, so let's do a quick review. Quick review. Judges 6 and 7. What happened in chapter 6? Chapter 6. <laughs> Judges 6. What do we got? Amen. Yes. Okay, so the Midianites were, like, they, they took over Israel, and all the people were captive, and they took away, like, all their food supply and everything like that, and there was a famine, and Gideon was planting wheat, like, against the Midianites, like, rule, I guess. Yes. And so then he was supplying it to people, which got him the title of... Valor, something Valor. Yeah, a mighty man of Valor. Yes, yes that one. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. And then, and then he did like this thing. I don't, I forget what it was, but it was like a talk. And then he was like God. He kept asking God questions, like, "Is this what I'm supposed to be doing?" And like leading, because God told him to prepare. I don't quite remember all of it. But okay, so he did something against the Midianites, and he became, he, he, God noticed him, and he became a mighty man of valor, and then God called him to go and do what? Fight. Fight against the Midianites. And then he said, uh, what now? Yes, he's the least of least. Me? Like, I'm the least. Why would you pick me? Why would, why do you want me to go and do this? And then God proved it to him. And then later on, he's like, God, are you sure? Yes, absolutely. And he confirmed it twice, twice. And you got the fleece, and that's what you're talking about, the fleece thing where he put it out. Yeah, and that whole thing. So Gideon, this guy who really feels like he's not worthy, like he can't really do anything, yet God says, no, you're my guy. And he, it was because he was a mighty man of valor. And he did that in the face of the Midianites. He planted that, that field of wheat. He was threshing wheat, and it was his father's field. And there's some great pictures there of Jesus Christ in the field of the Father, by the way. It's pretty cool. Anyway, providing what was necessary for the people and for his family because the Midianites wouldn't start burning down all the fields so that way the Israelites, they would starve. They would starve to death. They would have nothing for their cattle, nothing for their families, nothing. And so here you have Midian, the Midianites causing such a wreck to the nation of Israel. And you have Gideon who's now going with these other men to help him with this field and to take care of the nation of Israel. So God says, you're my guy. And he's super, super hesitant. All right, good. Anything else out of chapter 6? That takes care of the majority of it. Any other small little nougats? Or nuggets? No? Okay. All right, 7. This was last week. Chapter 7. Yes? 
Gideon has 32,000 men. Yes. God says that's too many, so it goes down to 10,000. Yes. And then they go to drink water, and depending on how the people drink the water, uh, the 300 of them were picked. Exactly. To go against the Midianites. And we'll find out in this chapter, chapter 8, guess how many of the Midianites there were altogether? A lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, one, two, three, a lot. Yes, yes, yes. We had 120,000 that were killed in this battle with Gideon, and then there was another 15,000 that remained plus the kings. So you're talking like 135,000 Midianites went against 300. 300. Just 300. Barely. It's just under 1% of all the people that came. And God's like, nope, it's not too much. Now, why would God do something like that? What was he trying to, what was he trying to teach Gideon? What was he trying to teach the people? What is he trying to teach you? Yeah. So they want to get prideful thinking that they did it on their own. Yeah. It was an impossible situation where God alone could be the only one to say, uh, hey, I did this. And they're like, uh, yeah, God did this because there's no way we could have done this. And remember what they did. What was the battle like? So Gideon, he gets his people, and then God says, go. And what's the state of Gideon's heart at that point in time? Is he like, yeah! Still no, he's like, huh. he's still doubting in his heart. And God's like, okay, fine, you're afraid. And if you're afraid, go ahead and take your friend. Anyone remember his name? <laughs> your friend named Friend. No, <laughs> no. it was Fura or whatever his name is, I think it was that in chapter 7, you can take him down, which is a great picture of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was always with Gideon. And so, hey, take him down. You two go down to the camp. And what did he hear in the camp? Yeah. Go ahead. There you're fine. You raise your hand, so I'll give you precedence. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, they, he heard them talking about, like, some dude had a dream, and he was like, oh, my gosh, like, the Israelites, like, God is with them. Like, they might actually defeat us, even though it was, like, strange because they had never... Like, they were so small. And I don't know. It was just a very cool situation where God showed them, like, hey, like, they're already, like, doubting themselves because right. of me. Right, exactly. And they specifically called out Gideon by name. Because remember, the dream was a barley cake, which I love bread. I, I love, I just love bread. It's just, bread's amazing. If you don't like bread, I'll pray for you. Bread is amazing. It's just, it's awesome. Okay, so this barley cake rolls into the camp and it goes into a tent and knocks the tent over down in a certain direction. And the guy who interprets says, well, surely this is Gideon. I mean, Gideon, he's going to come in and he's going to destroy us all. And they're like, what? Like, so they've already been talking about Gideon. And who knows how Gideon's name got mentioned. But here you have the enemies of God already knowing Gideon by name and that God is powerful and that he's going to come in and we're going to lose. Now that's, I mean, encouraging to Gideon. And now he goes back and he's like, okay, guys, we can do this. And so they take the 300 guys and then what do they do? They take a couple things. What do they take? Torch. Torches and Trumpet. trumpets. And they break into how many groups? Three. One. Three. Each of a hundred. And they surround the camp. And then Gideon's like, hey, would you see me do? Do likewise. Discipleship. I love it. Whatever you see me do, do likewise. And so Gideon blows the trumpet. They all blow the trumpet. He breaks the, the, the lanterns and then makes that sound. And they're shaking those lanterns with the, with the lamp inside. And then all of a sudden, out of the pitch black night, you have the confusion of the Midianites. And then what do they start doing? 
They start killing themselves. They're so freaked out about what's going on, they start killing themselves. And then Gideon and then his guys, they start pursuing them. And then Gideon sends word to the rest of the Israelites saying, hey, join us and let's go take them. God has given us this victory. And then that was the close of chapter 8, or chapter 7. And now we're getting into chapter 8. Now this is kind of cool. All right, so now that kind of sets the stage. We're on like a spiritual high because they are now taking out God's enemies. They are fulfilling what God has told them to do. And now we have several things that unfold here. Three points we're going to cover tonight. And the first one is verses 1 through 9, and that is spiritual warfare amid the battle. So anytime there's a battle going on, which by the way, in case you uh, forget, that was our summer camp theme, by the way. And it's not ironic, I think, that we're starting a new church, doing all sorts of stuff. We are expanding our ability to conquer more land for the Lord, people's hearts, being able to touch other people, doing a lot of different things. And so we're in the midst of the battle. Anytime you have a battle going on, whether it's personal, whether it's in your family, whether it's corporate, there is always spiritual warfare happening in the midst of the battle. And when I say the battle, I'm talking about the work of the Lord. Whenever you're doing the work of the Lord, which is what? Quick reminder. What is it? Evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism Evangelism means... Going out. Going out. Going out. Opening your mouth. Talking about the gospel. The gospel. The Bible. Jesus. How you got saved. All these things to them so that way they can get saved. Get saved themselves. And if they're already saved, then you can teach them more about the Bible. And that's where discipleship comes into play. If you don't think you can disciple somebody else, you're dead wrong. I mean, already, maybe you've only been here for a few weeks. Do you realize that you know more about the Bible than maybe other people do just from being here for a couple weeks? And hopefully you're paying attention. I guess that would be the other. You've got to learn how to pay attention to what God's teaching you. If you start living these things out, you can start helping somebody else who's not as far along than you to grow in their walk with God. That's all discipleship is, is growing in your faith and in your strength with the Lord and learning how to walk with Him on a daily basis. So in the midst of this battle of doing the work of the Lord, there's always going to be spiritual warfare. Always. And it's never going to happen the way that you think. And so here you have Gideon pursuing his enemies. They're in the midst of the battle. And there are three things that unfold that has to do with spiritual warfare here. All right. So let's start off in verse 1. Okay. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, unto Gideon, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou calledest us, uh, calledest us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I now done in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he said, when he had said that. Now, keep in mind here, you have in chapter 7, all the way up through verse 24, it says, Now they ended up fleeing after them, and it says, The men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and Asher, and out of all Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. And look what it says in verse 24 of chapter 7. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim. So these are the same guys that are speaking here saying, Come down against the Midianites, and take before them the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together, and took the waters of Bethbara and Jordan. And they, the men of Gideon, 
or not Gideon, the men of Ephraim, and they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. So now you have these guys of Ephraim saying, hey, listen, why did you not come and call us originally? When you were going to fight against the Midianites, why didn't you invite us? Why didn't you invite us? And Gideon's like, uh, what have I done? I called you, and you were able to conquer the two princes, Oreb and Zeb. And then they're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess. So they were able to be to receive glory from the battle by killing these two princes when Gideon just kind of kicked off the battle. And so he's saying, hey, listen, why are, you, why are you barking at me? Why are you chiding with me? Why are you fighting with me? I invited you to come, and God gave you two princes into your hands. And then they're like, oh, well, I guess that's true. All right, I'm cool. And so this may seem weird to you, but this is one of those things where whenever something's going on, when it comes to the battle, there's always an internal struggle sometimes between people because of their pride. And so something may unfold where it's like, hey, why weren't we invited? Oh, might touch a little soft spot for some people. Why weren't we invited? Or why didn't I come along? Or why didn't, why didn't I? Or how didn't I? Or why didn't... Okay, hold on a second. That's, first of all, a, that's a bad attitude that you're having already out of the gate. See, Gideon invited them to come, and because they obeyed Gideon's message, and they came, they had the opportunity to take these two princes out, and once they realized that, they were fine, but there was just some stirring up to do. And they just, they, they wanted more, and they were finding a reason to fight. And I'm telling you, it's, that's something that happens in our lives when it just comes to us and our friendship and as we operate together as a body. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I want to read the other verses because now we talk about not just the enemy within these men of Ephraim among the nation of Israel, but now we need to talk about the enemy without. So look at verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him faint. So they were fainting. They were so tired, yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? So, of course, they're not going to be giving any food. And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That's kind of nice. Very comforting. <laughs> All right. And then he moves on. And then he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And then it continues on, and we'll talk about Zeba and Zamuna here in a minute. So, now you have the enemy without. So, enemy without, verses 4 through 7, you see here the men of Sukkoth, and they are the leaders of the city, of this area. So, these leaders and rulers, these princes of Sukkoth, they refused to give loaves of bread to Gideon and his men as they were pursuing the remnant of Midian and their kings. And Gideon obviously gives them a few words. He says, I'm going to beat you with briars and tear the flesh off your body. That's pretty, pretty awesome. And then promises to return. And then you have another enemy without, and that's the people of the world. And there you have a, a great example there of these guys from Penuel who they refuse and they do the exact same thing as these princes of Sukkoth. So while he's doing this, and here's my whole point, he's battling, he's doing what God has told him to do. And while they're doing it, they're getting tired and they're getting run down. 
And so as they're going through, they're saying, hey, could you please give us some bread? And you're getting attitude. You're getting attitude from your own people of, hey, why didn't you invite us from the beginning? Why didn't you do that? And then as you're going, hey, we need bread. Uh, sorry, why should I give you any bread? You haven't defeated anybody. Why should I even feed you? And he's like, all right, fine. And then he goes to these other guys. Same thing, same thing over and over again. Anytime you're doing the work of God, there's always going to be things that happen in your life, spiritual warfare, that adds more pressure from various places to make the overall warfare of being obedient to God and His calling more difficult and more complex. It's always going to happen. I mean, don't you think, like, evangelizing is tough? Yes. 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 Having enough courage to open up your mouth and to share your faith with somebody else, is that difficult? Yes. Discipleship is equally as difficult. Because there are some times in a discipleship relationship where I'm meeting with a, my disciple or I've been met with, with someone discipling me where they've had to confront me on things in my life where I'm not being obedient. You think that's fun? That is very difficult. But I know they're doing it for my benefit. And I likewise want to do the same thing for the people that I disciple. That is, that is not easy. It's difficult. Doing what God has called us to do, to evangelize and to make disciples, is not easy. It is warfare. It's, it's hard. And in the midst of being obedient to God, then you find the enemy doing other things in your life to just pack on the pressure and to make you not want to be obedient, to make you not want to open up your mouth, to make you not want to be faithful in discipleship. And I don't know what all that is for you, but I know that it exists. It could be pressure from your friends. You have a stupid little fight with one of your friends where all of a sudden this friendship that you had for years now doesn't exist anymore. Or something dumb happens in your family where now you just feel super discouraged in your heart and you didn't even want to be around people, let alone go to church. It could be a whole host of things. But whenever you're wanting to do things that are right and pleasing to God, there's always going to be little things that happen all around you just to make it worse. And it's going to discourage you and make you want to stop from doing the work. And you have to keep that in mind. You have to. You have to. And so a few verses that I just was thinking about when it comes to this one is Psalm 61, verse 1 through 4. It says to the chief musician, this is the Psalm of David, he says, Hear my cry, O God, and attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Selah. So there's a lot of things that's going to happen from within because of pride and prideful situations among your friends or other people that you go to church with. Or other things that happen just to cause strife and envying and all that other stuff. And it just makes it very, very difficult. And I'm telling you, the leaders and the rulers of this world, like the princes of Sikoth, and the people of this world, like the men of Penuel, they're not your friends and they're not going to help. Uh, you can only get so far when it comes to these things in the world, these people in the world. They're never really going to help you in the work of God. It's going to try to do whatever they can to hinder you. And there's going to be a lot of days where you're going to feel very overwhelmed because you know that you should be doing something that is right in the eyes of God, but you're just going to feel like you can't, you can't do it. And so here you have Gideon and his men. They're faint. They're doing what's right, and here they're fainting. They're fainting, and they need food. They need sustenance, and these guys are not going to help them out at all. But what do they do? Do they stop? 
Come on. Some of you aren't paying attention like you should be. No. They keep going. Oh, we're not going to get any bread. All right, I'm out. No, no. They kept going. They kept going. And that's what they, that's what they did with these guys, Ziba and Zalmuna. All right. So that leads to point number two. Securing the victory. Securing the victory. Verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmuna were in Karkor and their hosts with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of the hosts of the children of the east. For there fell 120,000 men that drew swords. So there you go. That's where we get that number from as far as the number of the Midianites. And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbaha and smote the host, for the host was secure. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued after them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and discomfited the host. Discomfited all the host. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up, and caught a young man of the men of Sikoth. And uh, actually, you know, I want to stop there for a second because that's, I want to hit this part real quick. Okay, so we're going to stop after verse 13. Okay, so here you have these guys. And they ended up coming and they continued. They continued. Gideon was successful. He defeated these guys. He defeated the Midianites. And what I love about this section here is it talks about how this host was secure. So there was these 15,000 guys that were left over. And you notice that Gideon went up by the way of the tents on the way of the east, according to verse 11. And he smote the host. So there's a certain way that even though it was secure, he found his way in and he ended up conquering the rest of the guys. And he captured Ziba and Zalmunna. Now what I love about this is that even though they were faint, he did not rest. He fulfilled God's word unto his people. Even though he was weak, and he was tired, and it was difficult, he still pushed through. I think, just knowing my own testimony, and even from some of you guys, I think when things get hard for you, and you feel weak in your faith, and you feel very faint, you don't continue. You stop. Now, I can't say that for all of you, but I'm willing to bet that when you're too tired or you're discouraged, you will not get in your Bible as much when you should. I'm willing to bet that when you have struggles that are going on in your life and added pressure, that you may not go to the Lord as much as you should. And I'm telling you right now, when things get hard, that is the time more than ever that you need to draw close to the Lord that you need to prioritize your time in God's Word, that you need to make sure that your prayer life is where it should be with the Lord. There's a lot of people that may wake up on any given Sunday before going to church and they're just like, oh, I just don't want to go to church today. That is the day you need to go to church. You need to go to church that day. You must. You've got to. You have to. You need it. I'm telling you, this is one of these things in life that I have just learned is that the days are like, oh, I don't want to get in my Bible. Get in your Bible. Get in your Bible that day. There's something else that's going on that you may not even realize that you need that day, that your flesh is fighting against you and trying to get you to not get any sustenance between you and God. Or like, you know, I just pray to God, but nothing happens. Pray again. Talk to Him. Do you believe what God's Word actually says, that He hears your prayer when you cry out to Him? He does every single time. These guys had every reason to quit, and they didn't. They fulfilled God's Word. And so being committed to the work of God will require you to remain faithful even when you're tired. 
even when you're weary and even when you're just not feeling it. This is very important. It's always an honor to serve the Lord and we can glorify Him more when we're faint if you lean on Him and remain faithful with a good attitude. I'm telling you, this is a big one. This is a big one. I hope it doesn't go over your head too much. This is a very, very important one. And what I love about these guys, I, I was reading about you know, Zeba and Zalmunna here, and it made me think of Psalm 149. This is really cool. And this will tie in with this next point over here. Psalm 149, verses 6 through 9, it says this. It says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. These guys all had that. To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Verse 9 stood out to me in a way I've never really saw it before. Where it says, These things, when it comes to executing vengeance upon the heathen, binding their kings with chains, their nobles with iron, to execute judgment upon them, which was written, it says, This honor have all the saints. It's an honor to participate in spiritual warfare for the Lord. It is. And this is really cool, because you'll see this in a minute. All right, so take a look at verse, we already read verse 13. He returned from battle. Take a look at verse 14. And he says it here that he caught a young man of the men of Sakoth and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Sakoth. So that means that Gideon didn't even see these guys when he was passing through asking for bread. And the elders thereof, even three score and seventeen men. How many men is that? Three score and seventeen. Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Three score, sixty, and seventeen. Seventy-seven men. So this young man described these seventy-seven guys, and it says in verse 15, And he came unto the men of Sikoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and the thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sikoth. <laughs> do you get that? I mean, do you get that? So that means that Gideon and his men came into Sakoth, and he took these 77 men, and I imagine it this way. They go in, they find all 77, and he lines them up outside the city, and he grabs briars from the wilderness, and he's like, all right, boys, drop them. And then he starts wailing on them. I mean, that's really what he says. He taught these men. He gave them spankings with briars. That's what he did. And that's exactly what he said he was going to do. He's like, I'm going to tear the flesh off your skin with the briars of the wilderness. And he says, with those briars, he taught those men. So you think the men of Sakoth are ever going to speak bad about Gideon ever again? You think if Gideon rolls around again and says, hey, give me a loaf of bread, you think they're going to give him bread? You better believe they are. <laughs> they don't want to get a whooping like that again. I just thought that was kind of cool. All right. And then, verse 17, and he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. Okay, so you think the uh, people of Penuel is going to give him bread again? Oh, uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's just a side note. So he came back and he fulfilled his promise. All right, so here's the opportunity that I was going to get to. All right, verse 18. Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, They were my brethren. Gideon says this. Even the sons of my mother, as the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. 
And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, Up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Ziba and Zalmunna, and took away the ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Okay, so here you have these guys, and now Gideon has decided, I'm going to kill you, and mainly because you killed my brethren. And I actually tried to search and try to find out where this was at, and it's not actually recorded in Scripture when this happened in Tabor. So we know that Gideon, this is an event that happened at some point in the recent past, that these two guys came into Tabor and killed all of Gideon's family. And so Gideon was ticked. And so he says, hey, if you would have spared my family, I would have spared your life. But since you killed my family, I'm going to kill you. And then he calls his firstborn and says, all right, I want you to kill these kings. And what did the firstborn do? He didn't do it. He was afraid. Kind of like Gideon was afraid at the beginning, right? Kind of like his father. So Gideon provided an opportunity for his son to uniquely honor the Lord. And that's why I wanted to mention Psalm 149, where it says, To execute upon them judgment written, this honor have all his saints. So Gideon provided an opportunity for his son to uniquely honor the Lord, and frankly, his family. But his youth and his inexperience brought him fear. And he wasn't ready to take on this part of the battle. And did Gideon berate him or beat him with briars? Mm -mm. Doesn't say that at all. It's okay. There are times in your life where because of your youth and your inexperience, it's okay to be afraid to the point where you don't participate. But you can't live there forever. There's only a certain amount of time in your life where God's going to give you some extra grace in your youth and in your inexperience to not participate in certain parts of the battle. And so learn from those experiences, take those in, and learn how not to be afraid and to step up to the plate when God calls you later. And so I was thinking a lot about discipleship. That as a discipler, that we should always be willing to take risks as we train up the next generation to faithfully follow the Lord. There are times, like even tonight, and this is a good example, I think. So tonight, I asked you guys to write down three names of people to invite to winter camp. Maybe that thought just absolutely terrifies you. Because you've never invited someone to church. Or you've never invited someone to camp before. You're inexperienced. And you're in your youth. It's okay. Pray that God will give you an open door. If you don't invite someone to camp, we're not going to whoop you with briars. I mean, Aaron might. <laughs> yeah, that's a new camp activity you're having this year, isn't it? <laughs> All right, line up. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do that. No, I mean, that's not going to happen. But think about it. You're missing out on an opportunity to uniquely honor the Lord. It takes a little bit of courage. And so the best way to have courage, I found in my own life, is by watching people that are more experienced in action. That's the best way that I've found to have courage because I look at them and I learn from them and I'm thinking, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. And then I go and I do it. One of the best things that you can ever have is someone in your corner that believes in you and is willing to help you to succeed in your Christian walk. And I'm telling you, if you don't have that, you cannot grow. You can't grow. I always want our youth ministries to be a place where you feel that way. I want our youth ministries to be a place we encourage you and we challenge you and we stretch you and when you fail, we don't beat you with briars. Andy's getting better a little bit at times. We don't beat you with briars. 
But we encourage you. And we help you. Because the Christian walk is not an easy thing. And you've got to learn how to warfare properly. And that's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's the whole point. We want to teach you in such a way that when you get older, you'll be able to take someone else under your wing to teach them those exact same things. But listen, if you never participate and you never get involved in the work of the Lord, you will never be able to train anybody else. And there is a space of grace for you in your life, for sure. For sure. But at some point, that's going to come to an end. And then people are not going to invest in you because you are not a faithful man and a faithful woman who is able to teach others also. And I don't want that for anyone. Because everybody can do it. The work of the Lord is something that everybody can do. It might be different in how it works out with your personality versus somebody else's, but it's something that everybody can do. And I'm telling you, you do not want to come to the end of your life and look back over it and realize that there are so many things that you should have done for the Lord and you never did it because you passed upon the opportunity. You were too much of a coward and you were too afraid to take a stand and to get involved. The only way you can actually learn is by just doing it. I mean, that's with anything else. I mean, it truly is. Like when you're learning how to drive... You can study the book, right, for the exam, and you can take the test and you can ace it. But it's a whole different ballgame sitting behind the wheel, responsible for your life and the lives of other people around you. It's a completely different ballgame, isn't it? And it's the same thing with anything else, and especially in the Christian life. God does not care how much you know about the Bible. He cares about what you know and do. That's what He really cares about. You may not know as much about the Bible as the person next to you, but if you're more obedient about the things you do know, then you're definitely going to be more fruitful than the person next to you. That's what God cares about the most. So Gideon provided this opportunity to his son, and he was too afraid. But that's kind of what happened. All right, number three. Okay, so now the battle is over, and now there's a season of rest. And there's a couple warnings that are in here that we need to be aware of. So now there's the season of rest. All right, so verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Good response. That's the right thing to say. Verse 24, And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were about the camel's necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon into his house. Okay, so now the battle is over. And then you have these guys where he's like, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to rule over you. God's going to be your only king and he's going to rule over you. But I do have a request. Give me all the earrings from our, our enemies. Does that sound familiar? When did that happen before? 
Aaron, right? Over in Exodus, what happened? Tell me what happened. To make the golden calf. Okay, to make the golden calf, because where was Moses? He was up on the mountain. He was getting the Ten Commandments, and he was up there for 40 days. And they're like, well, we don't know what happened to him. Uh, maybe he's dead. All right, well, let's go ahead and make an idol. Yeah, great idea. So let's go ahead. Give me all your golden earrings. And they started putting it all together. They melted it down. They made a golden calf, and they began worshiping that calf. And then Moses came down off the mountain, ticked his all get out. I'm sure he had briars in his hands. I know he did. <laughs> And he threw down and he broke those Ten Commandments and he just let them have it. And then God wanted to kill them all. Okay, so this was not a good scenario. This is not a good scenario. But here you have almost the exact same thing happen as what happened back in Exodus, Exodus 32. And here you have these earrings unfold and then they make this ephod. Now an ephod was a garment used by the high priest and it was used in his priestly duties. You'll find that when um, uh, the high priest or anyone that was talking with God, they would often wear the ephod and God would communicate to them through that. So it wasn't the ephod that was used back in the tabernacle or the temple at this point in time, but it was something that was like it. But obviously it was an issue because all Israel, verse 27, went thither a whoring after it. So they were greedy of it. They're like, oh, this is amazing. Oh, this is awesome. And it talks about how much, how much money was here. They said there were 1,700 shekels of gold. So this works out to be about 73 pounds. 73 pounds of gold, which is insane. If you were to go buy gold prices today, this would be like <laughs> over $100 million. It'd be insane. But back in the day, it was probably was roughly around 500 bucks. But $500 back in the Old Testament was a lot of money. And so they throw all this stuff in and they make this thing. Now, here's my point. Why do you think Gideon made this? Why do you think Gideon made this ephod? It doesn't tell you. We're going purely on conjecture, but why do you think he made it? Yeah. Representation. Yes, of what? Because remember, ephod was used in the communication between the high priest and God. So representing what? Very good start. Think about the battle and what just transpired. You want to give it a shot, Lily? That you can talk to him whenever. Okay, kind of. The Gideon talked to God. <laughs> yep. And it was because of God, so he's going to like show that by um, like showing that they can talk to God and stuff. Yeah, so it's because of God that we even won this battle. God spoke to us. We're going to set up a golden ephod. Because remember gold in the Bible, those of you that just went through the tabernacle, what does that represent? Yeah, royalty, deity, God, divinity, God himself. Anytime you see gold in the Bible. So here you have this golden ephod, and he set it up as a monument to represent God's victory over the Midianites. But the Midianites ended up went a whoring after it. They're like, oh, this ephod is so amazing. It's so pretty. Just look how it shines. I mean, they were just all, they were gawking over it. And they loved it. And people would probably travel there and they would, they would see this great work. And they forgot about God. This is very important. Now, some of you may not have walked with God long enough to experience this, but this is something that you'll learn as you get older. When you have great victories in your life, some of you actually may know this even from camps. You've gone to camp long enough. Or VBSs. I mean, this is another, this is a great example, I think. That whenever God has, done, God has done something great, that God has done something amazing that only God can do, we can look back over in our past and say, Oh, man, look what God did. You remember what God did? That was amazing. Ah, oh, that was amazing. Oh, I wish God would do something like that again. 
man, that was so, that was incredible. You remember when this unfolded and remember when like half my class at VBS got saved? Remember when I was able to take a couple of my friends to camp and they got saved and like, oh, it was just so amazing. Ah, we spend all this time focusing on things of the past where God did great things that you begin actually idolizing and worshiping those moments of the past. And you forget about God. Because God, yes, He did something in the past, but the past is the past. What is God doing now? Some people think so much about the past, they don't have a clue about the present and what God's doing right now, let alone what God is going to be doing in the future. Because they're so enthralled by the past and the past things and what God has done that they completely miss what God is doing now. And so Israel, as they were whoring after this ephod, they began worshiping and idolizing the ephod rather than the God that gave them the victory that was represented by this ephod. This is so important for you guys to get. There are so many people that want things that God has done in the past, but yet He's not in the past. He's in the present, and He's doing things right now, and they completely miss it. And notice it says in verse 27 that this, not only Israel went a-whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. A snare. It became a snare. Now, I will give, give me a couple readers. Psalm 46.10. Okay, got that one, Lily. And then Deuteronomy 32.39. One second. Go ahead, Sam. Deuteronomy 32-39. Everyone else go to James 1. James 1. Hold your spot in Judges and go to James 1. James. James 1. If you've hit the maps, you've gone way too far. I haven't said that one in a while. All right, James chapter 1. Okay, so this ephod in and of itself was not a sin. It was not a sin, but it became sinful over time. And it's when, when they began to worship it rather than the God behind it and what God did in and through what it represented. And so when that happens, we need to remember something. And this is not easy for us to do. There's a couple things that we need to do. And we need to remember who God is and what He's doing. Lily, go ahead and read Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. I love this verse. Be still and know that I am, it's present tense, I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen, what God's going to do in the future. I will be exalted in the earth. There are so many times that we need to be still and know in that moment that God is who He says He is. You cannot depend on past victories for current situations. You can't. And you can't even do that with past failures either. Just because you failed in the past doesn't mean you're going to fail in the future or present. I mean, some people do that a lot. They really do. So here you have this scenario, and that's a very good verse. It's a very good verse to remember. I also love Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. We have to remember that God is in control. We cannot forget that. It's so easy for us to 
to worship and to honor these things that we completely forget that God alone is God, that He kills and He makes alive, He wounds and He heals, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand, that He is God, there's no other God beside Him. And that's why I also love James 1.17. Go ahead, and since we're in James 1, take a look at verse 17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good and every perfect gift comes from who? Not everybody at once. <laughs> or everybody at once. Yeah, it comes from God. It comes from Him. So these guys began worshiping this ephod, and you need to remember that. That God needs all the glory and the credit, and these people started completely worshiping something totally different. So we need to beware of sin snares. And it may not be something that happens immediately, but it's something that can happen over time, and that is something that is totally, totally true. I've seen it in my own, uh, the lives of my own friends growing up who I used to serve with in ministry when we did vacation Bible school together. Uh, many of them are not even walking with the Lord today at all. And it shocks me. It amazes me. It absolutely amazes me. Because in my life, and I don't know why I, I learned this or why God taught it to me. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But I know that the things that God has done in the past has encouraged me to continue being faithful in the present. It's just what I've seen. I mean, if God can do that, why wouldn't I worship Him? Why wouldn't I want to do something for Him? If God has helped me with this struggle in my life, why would I not want to do something for Him in the future? And I've never really had a hard time with that, and I don't know why, but that's just something between me and the Lord that I've, I've always had in my heart. But I've seen people that have taken circumstances and they idolize and they worship the past, and in the present they're not doing anything for the Lord. So that's what's going on here with this golden ephod. It became a snare unto Gideon into his house, and frankly to the whole nation of Israel. And then the last part, verses 29 through 35 of Judges 8. 29 through 35. This part kind of ticks me off a little bit. Alright. 28. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their head no more, and the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. Now verse 29. And Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, remember that's Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abzerites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went a-whoring after Balaam and made Baal-berith their god. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their god, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed, thy kind, neither showed they kindness unto the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. This is a horrible way to end this. It's horrible, but this is what happened. And honestly, this is what happens in our own lives. So you need to beware of sin's seduction. And this is what happens here. Beware of sin's seduction. You've got to beware of sin's snares, that first part with the golden ephod. And now this last part, you've got to beware of sin's seduction. So, the people were obedient as long as Gideon was alive. But the moment that he died, they went back and they did that which was right in their own eyes. And they started worshiping Baal again. And then this Baal Beareth, I thought this was interesting, this means Baal of the covenant. So they were willing to make a covenant 
with a form of Baal, but not God. This is amazing to me. After seeing what God had done for them in destroying the Midianites, they quickly go back to their old ways and they go and they do it again and again and again. And it says the same thing in Judges 2. I'm going to read verses 17 and 19. It says, And they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, like Gideon, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Sin is very dangerous. You know, we live in a time where... Um, and uh, there's a couple of things I want to say on this one. But we live in a time where it's very... There are things that you don't think are a big deal that are a very big deal. There are things that you think that are not dangerous that are extremely dangerous. There are things that you guys think that are not dangerous at all now, that back when I was your age, I wouldn't even have fathomed. Like, it's weird. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And when you let just a little bit in, I'm telling you, if you let that exist in your life and you continue down that path, the next generation from you, they're going to let in more. And they're going to let in more after them, and after them, and after them. And when it comes to the things that are going on right now, um, especially when it comes to our church plant that's coming up, and the, some of the things that you guys are going to do, which we're going to talk more about this on Sunday and even in the weeks to come, because I want to try to prepare you guys as much as I can. Um, there's part of me, frankly, that I'm kind of afraid on how this is going to go with our youth. I'm excited. Don't get me wrong, I'm very excited. But I'm a little afraid. Partly because many of you are really not doing the work of God now where you are. And so when things change and people are getting sent out and the people that remain and you guys are building something new in another location and then rebuilding things here, are we going to be weaker as a result? Because for some of you, like even tonight, like there's a few of you that as I look out, like you're not here. Like you're not here. Like I don't know where you are. You might be physically here, but your heart is not here. And if we continue down this path of attending church because this is just what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, and we really don't take this seriously, this is going to go awfully wrong. I mean, Gideon and his men were successful because of one man. Gideon. But the moment Gideon was out of the picture, there was no legacy. There was nothing that lasted. There was no one else that stood up to the plate. We can't have that. I mean, any church, look down through the history of churches, any church that was built around one man, never went past, successfully, never really went past that one man. It never really happened. 
And maybe Israel going a whoring after the things that they did before and worshiping Baal, maybe that was partly Gideon's fault. Because maybe he didn't train up his boys the way that he should have. And when I see his oldest is hesitant to kill Ziba and Zalmunna, why was he hesitant? I don't know. But maybe it's something that Gideon didn't do when he was younger. I, I don't know. But we don't see them in existence at all. And so my assumption is that they went completely wayward after Gideon died. I, I have no idea. But we also see this ephod that Israel began to whore after. I mean, that's the only other place that's connected. So because Israel began whoring after the ephod, then when Gideon was gone, they just continued their whoredoms and started going elsewhere and went to Baal. And so here's my point. If you are not earnestly walking with God and faithfully walking with Him now and doing the work that He's called you to do now, I'm very fearful when we do this that it will not go well. And you really need to think about that. And I feel like I need to call that to an attention, at least at this point in time, because at this point, I'm the leader and I'm responsible for your guys' well-being, both now and in the near future, and to go out well to this church plant. And so I want you to think about this. Consider this. And I really want you to start just kind of mulling over. You've got, what, three months to get things in order? Three months to start getting active? To get with it? It's not like you can start walking with God at the end of February and then everything's going to be all hunky-dory. It's not going to work like that. You need to start now. You need to start now. Get on the ball now. Like, for real. I'm not joking. You need to get on the ball now. If there are things in your life that you've just neglected and you're not dealing with, you need to deal with them. Now. Today. Tonight. You have great opportunities between the Christmas party and winter camp to start thinking and inviting people to come to camp. But maybe you're hesitant to invite people to those things because you yourself are not walking with God. Like you, you just have no real relationship. You have a, a feigned relationship with God. There's, a, there's an idea of a relationship with God, but it doesn't actually exist. And so it zaps your confidence to be able to open up your mouth and talk about a relationship that you don't have. So you really need to take some personal inventory because we are in a battle and God wants you in this thing and to be successful. So this last part, you can start writing some of the things that maybe that you need to take away for yourself personally. But thinking back over these three points, I think of a couple different things. You know, what does your spiritual endurance look like right now? Do you buckle under pressure? And do you finish what you've started? Have you even really started between you and the Lord? You've got to think about some of this stuff. You need to be seeking opportunities to grow and to help others around you to grow. And, when, and, and maybe this is a good question for you when it comes to your personal faithfulness. What does your obedience look like when accountability isn't around? Like, what does your obedience look like when your accountability is not around? And do you find yourself just going back to your old ways? If you do, your faith is incredibly weak, and you've got some work to do. But we all need to be taking some personal inventory, because God's doing some big things, and He's given us some time now that we need to be preparing personally. And I feel that it's appropriate to just call those things to your attention. So take... 
a minute or so and just write down some of the things specifically that you need to be obedient about when it comes to this message.